I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 36, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 5, pages 1129 to 1143. And if there's time after that, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Chapter 19, Pope Paul VI and the Church's Paradigm Shift on Homosexuality. Pope John XXIII, the Interim Pope. Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, known to the world as Pope John XXIII, served as the critical interim link between the pontificates of the two great framers and implementers of the revolution in the Catholic Church. Pope Pius XII, Eugenio Pacelli, and Pope Paul VI, Giovanni Battista Mantini. Roncalli's powerful Roman patronage from the Rompola crowd, his progressivist leanings, and his advanced age were sufficient to qualify him as an apprentice pope, but not a leader of the revolution. A Lombard like Battista Mantini, Roncalli was born on November 25, 1881, in Soto il Monte, Italy, in the Diocese of Bergamo. He was the fourth child in a family of 14. The extended Roncalli family, headed by his great-uncle Saverio, were poor, sharecroppers with a heavy dependency on the goodwill of their landlord. Life was difficult. Roncalli was attracted to the priesthood at a very early age. In his memoirs, he said that he never knew a time when he did not want to be a priest. He began as a day student at the tender age of nine at the Episcopal College at Chilana, but after a trying year, he returned home where he was tutored by his parish priest, Don Francesco Rebuzzini. He entered the junior seminary at Bergamo at age 11 in November 1893. Thereafter, his training for the priesthood progressed in an ordinary manner until a chance meeting on September 17, 1899, with Monsignor Giacomo Maria Rodini Tedeschi. Monsignor Rodini Tedeschi, a canon of St. Peter's in, at St. Peter's in Rome, with important curial connections, would later become Roncalli's lifelong patron and protector. The 42-year-old Rodini Tedeschi extended a general invitation to the aspiring cleric to come to Rome to study, but the acceptance was delayed until Roncalli won a scholarship to the Pontifical Seminary in Rome. From January 1901 to 1905, with a singular interruption of one year to complete compulsory military service, Roncalli remained at the Roman College following his ordination as a priest of the Diocese of Bergamo on August 10, 1904. He stayed in Rome to complete his degree in canon law. Once again, Providence intervened. In 1905, Pope Pius X embarked upon a program to defang Cardinal Rompola's modernist allies. He made Rodini Tedeschi, a bishop, and kicks him upstairs. Bishop Rodini Tedeschi selected Roncalli to accompany him to the Diocese of Bergamo 
as his secretary. As a member of Rodini Tedeschi's official entourage, Roncalli began to absorb the progressive spirit of his wealthy and influential patron and mentor. Other members of the exclusive circle included Cardinal Rampolo, Rampala and his secretary Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pius XII, Giacomo della Chiesa, the future Benedict XV, who worked at the Vatican's Department of State, and Cardinal Andrea Carlo Ferrari, Archbishop of Milan. In addition to his diocesan studies in 1906, when accepted a position at the diocesan seminary where he taught history and apologetics. Rumors that Roncalli's lectures contained seeds of modernism were of little concern to him. He continued to be well protected until the death of Rodini Tedeschi in 1914. With the installation of a new ordinary, Bishop Luigi Maria Morelli, who had a reputation for orthodoxy and little patience for novelty, theological or otherwise, Roncalli's chances for ecclesiastical advancement looked bleak. In May 1915, Roncalli was called out for active duty as an army chaplain to serve in the Great War. Upon his return from the horrific and sobering experience of trench warfare, his superior, Bishop Morelli, appointed him director of the House of Studies at Bergamo and later spiritual director of the diocesan seminary. He was also assigned to, as chaplain to the Union of Catholic Women, UCW. According to Marie Martinez, it was in connection with the UCW's factory workers strike that Marancali met a kindred spirit in the person of strike organizer and Christian Democrat political activist Giudita Montini, the mother of the future Pope Paul VI. The year 1921 brought a sharp change in fortune for Roncalli. Pius X had forced the modernists underground, but with Giacomo della Chiesa now sitting on the papal throne as Pope Benedict XV, they emerged as virulent a strain as ever. Pope Benedict XV summoned Roncalli to Rome and made him chairman of the Central Council of the Propagation of the Faith in Italy with an office in the Curia. Unfortunately for Roncalli, one year later, Pope Benedict XV was dead. His successor was Achille Ratti, who became Pope Pius XI. For the visionaries of New Church, his election was another temporary setback. While working at the Propaganda Fide, Monsignor Roncalli developed important political contacts with Giorgio Montini, editor of Il Cittadino La Brescia and an activist in the anti-fascist Partita Popolare Italiana, PPI, led by Don Luigi Storm. It was about this time that Roncalli met the older, not the elder Montini's middle son, the up-and-coming diplomat Monsignor Giovanni Battista, who had returned from Poland. The two men struck up a close friendship that lasted a lifetime. In 1924, Monsignor Roncalli 
secured a teaching position at the Pontifical Lateran University as professor of theology and ecclesiastical history. Meanwhile, Martinez reports that it was during his tenure at the Lateran that Roncalli began to spice up his lectures with the writings of of author of of anthroposophist anthroposophist Rudolf Steiner, the ex-adept of the occult sect Ordo Templi Orientis that claimed to they claimed the late Cardinal Rampala as a leading light. She states that the word, that word of Roncalli's impotent remarks reached the ear of Pius XI. This incident would have been the cause of an immediate dismissal from his post at the Pontifical University were it not for the intercession of Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Gaspari, who secured for his friend Roncalli a bishopric and a diplomatic post in the Balkans to await better times. On the other hand, Roncalli's biographer Peter Hebelfleet suggests that the cleric's banishment from Rome was triggered by some inopportune pro-PPI, pro-Christian Democrat, anti-fascist remarks in a sermon delivered at Bergamo Cathedral on September 1, 1924, on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of the death of Bishop Rodini Tedeschi. Monsignor Roncalli served as apostolic visitor and then apostolic delegate to Bulgaria from March 1925 to January 1935, at which time Pius XI made him papal nuncio to Turkey and Greece, where the worlds of Greek orthodoxy and Islam dominated the religious landscape. During the Second World War, most of Roncalli's time was taken up with humanitarian concerns, especially the plight of the Jews. Pope Pius XII ordered Roncalli to issue false baptismal certificates to Jews in order that they might resettle in Palestine that was under the control of the British. Roncalli balked. Roncalli informed the Pope that it was madness to give into Zionist demands for a Jewish homeland in Palestine that could not be justified on either historical or political grounds. Roncalli was against driving the Arabs, including a significant number of Christian Arabs, from their land to make way for the Zionists. Roncalli's opinions were shared by Luigi Cardinal Maglios, Maglione, the Vatican Secretary of State, but Pius XII would not be dissuaded. Roncalli set to writing out the false baptismal documents. The Christmas of 1944 saw Roncalli in Paris as papal nuncio to the Fourth French Republic. He succeeded in rescuing the French bishops who had sided with the Vichy government 1940 to 1944 against the free French forces. The victor, General Charles de Gaulle, was now demanding his pound of flesh. In May 1952, the 71-year-old Roncalli received word from Monsignor Montini, the substitute of the Vatican Secretariat of State, that Pius XII had appointed Roncalli as the Vatican's first permanent observer 
to the newly established United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, in Paris. Jacques Martin, the French ambassador to the Holy See, was credited with the diplomatic coup. There is evidence to suggest that during his years away from Rome, Roncalli was initiated into Freemasonry, even though Canon 2335 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law strictly prohibited such membership. Veteran Vatican reporter Martinez states that Milanese journalist Pierre Carpi, a pseudonym, claims to have absolute proof that while in Istanbul, Roncalli was initiated into the Brotherhood, reaching the 18th or Rosicrucian degree. After his posting into Paris, members of the presidential Guard Republic, Republican reported that Roncalli regularly attended the Thursday evening meetings of the Grand Orient Masonic Lodge. Years after the death of Pope John XXIII, favorable obituaries were issued by high-level Freemasons who applauded Roncalli as a brother who imparted his benediction, his understanding, and his protection to the craft. On November 14, 1952, Monsignor Roncalli received a confidential letter from Montini at the Secretariat of State asking Archbishop Roncalli if he would accept the position of Patriarch of Venice as the see was about to be vacated with the imminent death of Archbishop Carlo Agostini. It was an audacious offer considering the fact that Roncalli was nearing the age of retirement. Roncalli, anxious to return home, expressed his willingness to accept Pope Pius XII's offer. Roncalli was elevated to the Cardinalate on January 12, 1953, and was appointed Patriarch of Venice three days later. On November 4, 1958, Cardinal Roncalli ascended the chair of Peter as Pope John XXIII. He was almost 77 years old, but then again, he was intended to be an interim pope. His pontificate lasted less than five years, but he managed to complete his twofold mission to set up, the, set up the apparatus for the implementation of the revolution in the form of a general council and to prepare the way for his successor, Giovanni Battista Montini. Pope John XXIII's Consistories at the consistory of December 15, 1958, Giovanni Battista Montini, Archbishop of Milan, was the first cardinal created by Pope John XXIII. In the four consistories that followed, Roncalli brought to the College of Cardinals well past his full complement of 70. Archbishop Montini supplied the list of candidates. It was a Vatican rendition of Pack the College of Cardinals, reminiscent of the 1930s when President Franklin D. Roosevelt tried to pack the Supreme Court. The big difference, however, was that FDR got caught. In the naming of new cardinals, two factors predominated. The need to continue the internationalization, that is, the de-Romanization of the Curia, begun under Pius XII, and the need to line up votes for a pro-Montini conclave. Among those framers of New Church who received the red hat from the hands of Pope John XXIII were 
Augustin Bay, S.J. Leo Joseph Surians, Archbishop of Malines, Brussels, Belgium. Amleto Giovanni Sicognani, Apostolic Delegate in the United States. Carlo Confolinari, Secretary of the Sacred Congregation of Seminaries and Universities. Franciscus Koenig, Archbishop of Vienna, Austria. Paolo Gioba, Nuncio and Nuncio in Holland. Julius Dopner, Bishop of Berlin, Germany. Arcadio Maria Lara Ona, CMI, CME, Secretary of the Sacred Congregation of Religious. Bernard Jan Alfrich, Archbishop of Utrecht, Holland. Less than three months after becoming Pope, John Twenty-Third consecrated Albino Luciani, the future Pope John Paul I, Bishop of Vittorio Benetta, Italy. Pope Paul VI made Luciani, Patriarch of Venice, Archbishop Luciani's name topped Pope Paul VI list for the Red Hat at the Consistory of March 5, 1973. Cardinal Luciani shared the distinction of being one of the very few Italians admitted to the Montini Circle. Pope John XXIII calls for a general council. Historically speaking, there are four reasons for a pope to call an ecumenical, universal, or general council of all the bishops of the world. One, to end a schism. Two, to condemn heresies. Three, for dogmatic purposes. And four, to institute reform in the traditional sense, that is, to attack laxity in matters of church discipline or morals. Pope John XXIII's Ecumenical Council, 1962-1965, was not called for any of these reasons. It was called for the ostensible purpose of aggiornamento, or updating the Church and bringing the Church into the modern world. The Council was declared to be a pastoral as opposed to a dogmatic Council. This verbal distinction, however, set up a false dichotomy for revealed truth is never opposed to genuine pastoral considerations. Certainly, Pope John XXIII was not into condemnations and anathemas, but in the past were precursors of legitimate reforms and the life of the Church. He made this point quite clear in a speech that was drafted by Montini to the more than 2,000 Church Council Fathers gathered for the solemn opening of the Council in St. Peter's Basilica on October 11, 1962. As noted by Mario and Iota Unum, Pope Paul VI later reformulated the objective, objectives of the Council to include, one, the Church's taking account of itself, two, to reform in terms of self-correction, three, the causa unionis, that is the issue of Christian unity, and four, to throw out a bridge to the modern world. The inspiration for the Council was said to have struck Pope John XXIII like a flash of lightning from heaven. The reality, it appears, was a bit more mundane. Pope Pius XI had interrogated his cardinals on the timeliness of a general council at a secret consistory on May 23, 1923, 
and they advised against it on the grounds that it would likely open the door to the architects of revolution within the church. Pope Pius XII, Pius XII also considered convening a general council early in his pontificate and went so far as to instruct the Holy Office to draw up a preliminary prospectus. The first secretary of the secret preparatory commission was Father Pierre Charles, a Belgium Jesuit. Unfortunately for the revolutionaries, the contingencies of the Second World War followed by the Cold War and the lack of funds militated against the calling of an ecumenical council at that time. As noted by Martinez, by the time Pope John XXIII took office, Archbishop Martini, in conjunction with the bishop, in conjunction with the Rhine group that included such revolutionary luminaries as the Swiss theologian Hans Kung, Leo Joseph Swinens, Julius Dupfner, Franciscus Koenig, Augustine Bay, and Albina Luciano, Luciani had already reworked Pope Pius XII's plans for a general council in a series of secret high-level meetings held in Munich. Roncalli was not present at these meetings. While Pope John XXIII had the Curia and Preparatory Commission for the Council feverishly preoccupied with the drafting of orthodox schemas that were ostensibly intended to serve as the basis for deliberation by the Council Fathers, Montini and company were busy drawing up parallel schemas that would be substituted when the order came down to discard the Curia-approved drafts and begin again. As for the members of the loyal opposition, they were largely unorganized and weak, and they made the fatal error of grossly underestimating the abilities of the enemy. Midway through the council, he fell into a state of utter collapse. This was not surprising as both Pope John XXIII and Pope Paul VI, who ultimately held the keys to power over the in the church, were against them. The plot against the church by Maurice Pinay, printed originally in Italian, was distributed in the fall of 1962 during the opening days of the council. The book was one indication that not everyone was clueless concerning the political and theological intrigue generated by the framers of the council. However, the early warning signs that gave mischief was about that grave mischief was about, were easily dismissed by the majority of church fathers in the euphoric atmosphere and hyper-media glitz that greeted the opening of the Second Vatican Council. Nevertheless, the fact that the enemies of the church, including the liberal establishment, communist Freemasons, and Zionists universally hailed the event as a monumental step forward for humanity should have given the Church Fathers cause for concern. Cardinal Montini, the hidden hand. Today it is freely acknowledged by both opponents and supporters of the revolution that has swept through the Catholic Church that Cardinal Montini controlled the direction and agenda of the early days of the Council from behind the scenes in Milan. After the council opened, Montini moved the center of, the, of his operation to his suite of rooms at the Vatican, rooms traditionally reserved 
for resident cardinals. On January 26, 1959, only one day after Pope John XXIII had publicly announced the convening of a general council for the Universal Church, Archbishop Montini addressed a massaggio to the faithful of Milan. His, meeting, his musings on the upcoming council suggest he either had a crystal ball or he was in on the ground floor of the elite shakers and movers of the council. According to Amario, on the eve of the council, L'Osservatore Romano carried portions of the text of a book written by Colonel Montini on the future council that was published by the University of Milan. Montini stated that the council's mission was to rearrange the faith so as to minimize its supernatural elements in order to render it more acceptable to the modern world and modern man. In a similar vein, Martinez reports that four days before Pope John's flash of lightning experience that allegedly inspired the council, Kung told an astonished lecture hall audience in the Hofkircher Abbey Court Church in Luzerne, Switzerland, not only would there be a general council, but he also outlined its direction and agenda. With the publication of the council reform and reunion one year before the opening of the council, Kung demonstrated that he knew more about the upcoming council than did Pope John. Betrayal in preparation for the council, Catholic bishops around the world were pulled by mail were pulled by mail by the office of the Secretariat to learn their opinions on topics to be considered at the council. Communism topped the list. However, as documented in the previous chapter, at the instigation of Cardinal Montini, two months before the opening of the council, Pope John XXIII approved the signing of the Metz Accord with Moscow officials, whereby the Soviets would permit two representatives from the Russian state church to attend the council in exchange for absolute and total silence at the Council on the subjects of communism, Marxism. With the exception with the exceptions of Cardinal Montini, who instructed Pope John to enter into negotiations with the Soviets, Colonel Eugene Tisserant, who signed the accord, and Bishop Jan Willebrands, who made the first contacts with the representatives of the Russian State Church, the Church Fathers at the Council were against, were ignorant of the existence and nature of the Metz Agreement and the horrendous betrayal that it represented. The degree of deception and duplicity surrounding the terms of the Metz Accord is clear when we read Father Ralph Wilgen's popular commentary on the, on the Council the Rhine Flows Into the Tiber, written in 1966, in which the author assures his readers that there were no obstacles for a, to a debate on communism in the, at the Council. The nature of communism did not come up directly at either the Paris or the Moscow meetings. No request was made by the Russian Orthodox Church that the subject should be, not be treated at the council 
and no assurance was given by Monsignor Willebrand that it would not. In explaining the council agenda, Monsignor Willebrand simply stated that the problem was treated positively in the council program. However, he made it clear that once the council opened, the church fathers were free to alter the program and introduce any topic they wished. The Soviets, however, did not have everything their way at the council. Prior to the arrival of the Russian state church observers on October 12, 1962, the Ukrainian bishops of immigration issued a public statement in which they expressed their bitterness that Bishop Yosef Ivanovich Slipy, Slipy, the only survivor of 11 Ukrainian bishops who spent 18 years in Stalinist prisons, labor camps, and Siberian exile, was not at the council. Yet church officials had arranged for officials of the Russian state church to be represented at the council. The Ukrainian press release stated that the presence of the two Russian state church observers at the Second Vatican Council has perturbed the believers. An ecumenical act is accomplished and the suffering of the Ukrainian church is forgotten. The press release pointed out that the presence of the Russians at the council is not able to be considered a fact of a religious and ecclesiastical character, but an act contaminated by a purpose alien to religion conducted by the Soviet regime in order to spread confusion. We know today that the church fathers were in fact not free agents in regard to the issue of communism Marxism at the Second Vatican Council, and that it was Cardinal Tisserand's duty as the first president of the council to ensure their silence on the matter and to make sure that the issue was never made a subject of formal debate or discussion at the council. That took some doing in light of the deterioration of many prelates in press to press for a separate schema devoted to a comprehensive refutation of communism. Colonel Tisserand was able to pull it off because, Pope, because of Pope Paul VI's ability to control the agenda of the council. When the dust had settled, the only reference to communism was a footnote citing past declarations by former popes against communism. The betrayal was complete. In the coming age of Ostpolitik, condemnation of communism no longer had a predominant place in the Russian, in the Roman ministerium, magisterium. A paradigm shift in the Church's historic condemnation of communism is but one of many sea changes that occurred in the Church under the relatively brief pontificate of Pope John XXIII. Pope John was also responsible for, his, for important changes in the sacred liturgy, as well as the introduction of numerous liturgical novelties. These included the promulgation of the so-called Dialogue Mass begun under Pius XI, in which the congregation recites much of the Mass along with the responses in unison with the priest. 
Pope John ordered the suppression of the leaning prayers at the end of the Mass that included the Hail Holy Queen and the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. He also suppressed the last gospel, the Gospel of St. John. In 1960, he removed the adjective prophetic unfaithful from the column from the solemn intercessions for the Jews in Good Friday on Good Friday. In 1962, Pope John directed that Saint Joseph's name be inserted into the in the canon of the Mass, a critically symbolic action since the text of the canon was held to be inviolate. Pope John the Twenty Third was not what traditionalists would call a Marian Pope. According to Frere Michel de la Sainte Trinité, the author, author of the famous four-volume work on Fatima, To la Verite sur, sur Fatima, on September 13, 1959, all the bishops of Italy solemnly consecrated their nation to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. However, the movement was so little encouraged by Pope John XXIII that his silence and reserve could not pass unnoticed, said Frère Michel. <sighs> On August 17, 1969, 1959, Pope John had the envelope containing the third secret of Fatima brought to him at Castle Gandolfo. The first two secrets having been revealed in 1942 with the permission of Pope Pius XII. Years later, Cardinal Ottaviani, Prefect for the Holy Office, who was present at the historic event, said that Pope John XXIII placed the secret in one of those archives which are like a very deep dark well, to the bottom of which papers fall, and no one is able to see them anymore. Pope John dismissed the third secret with the comment that it was not for our time. <clears throat> Excuse me momentarily.
In March 1963, only three months before his death, Pope John, most certainly under directions from Cardinal Mantini, established a six-member commission to study the subjects of birth control, no births and no control, and population control, population people control. This early commission had laid the groundwork for the Humana Vitae debacle in 1968 and the crisis of authority that accompanied it. We will return to this sorry chapter in the history of the Church later in this chapter. With the death of Pope John the Twenty-Third on June 3, 1963, at the age of 81, the eyes of the world turned to his successor, Giovanni Battista Cardinal Mantini, who ascended the chair of Peter as Pope Paul VI. Pope Paul VI, the early years. Having already touched upon certain aspects of the early life of young Giovanni Battista Mantini in the form of short anecdotes that are found scattered through this text, a brief recollection of his early years will suffice. Mantini was born on September 26, 1897, in the family's country home in the village of Concesio, five miles north of Brescia, in Lombardy. At birth, the patri matriarch of the family, Francesca Buffali Mantini, his paternal grandmother, determined that the infant's mother, Giudita, was too weak to nurse, and the child was shipped off to Peretti with a wet nurse for the first 14 months of his life. The young Batista lived a, a cosseted life of ease and comfort as the frail, whining middle child wedged between two apparently healthy brothers, Lodovico the elder and Francesco the younger. Giorgio Mantini, Batista's father, was, was, was a successful journalist editor of the local Catholic paper Il Cittadino and a member of the Italian Chamber of Deputies. Both Giorgio and Giudita Mantini shared a passion for the politics of the left, a question that was passed down to all their sons. At the age of six, Batista was enrolled at the Desert Collegio Cesare Arici in Brescia. He remained here until he was 14, at which time he, he, his parents removed him for health reasons. Like Bacelli, Batista's secondary education was carried out in private with tutors selected by his parents, including priests from the oratory at the nearby church of Santa Maria della Pace. The oratorians represented the clerical avant-garde of the day. They were more politically attuned to the anti-fascist politics of Giorgio Montini and his wife than the traditionalist Jesuit priests at Arici. The Oratorians remained one of the most important influences on Batista throughout his life. Even after Batista entered the service of the Holy See, he retained an Oratorian confessor. Again, as was the case with Eugenio Pacelli, after their son's ordination as a priest of Brescia in May 
on May 19, on May 29, 1920, the Montinis used their influence with the Vatican's old boys network to get Batista out of a Paris assignment and to Rome in order that he might begin his diplomatic career in the service of the Holy See. I use the word career as opposed to vocation advisedly. Montini's somewhat toady biographer, Peter Hebelfleet, was at least honest enough to assert that much. Batista was not particularly religious. Politics and the piano were his forte. Aside from saying mass and performing various sacramental rites, the young priest appeared to have little in the way of a spiritual life. The young Father Batista also displayed an aversion to Marianist devotions, particularly the rosary. He said he preferred more Christ-centered approach to Mariology. On November 18, 1921, Father Montini entered the Academia dei Nobili Ecclesiastici to study diplomacy. His entrance into the academy was facilitated by Rampola's long-time ally, Cardinal Pietro Gaspari, now Secretary of State. An excellent political priest, but a poor scholar, Montini whizzed through his diplomatic courses, but barely managed to earn his degree in canon law from the Gregorian. In 1923, Pope Pius XI sent the young diplomat to Warsaw as an attaché of the papal nunciature, but Monsignor Montini's delicate health could not abide the severe Polish winters, and he returned to Rome, where he was assigned to the Secretariat of State, headed by Cardinal Gaspari. Life in the Roman Curia Father Montini's immediate superior of the, at the Secretariat was none other than Monsignor Francesco Borgognini, Borgognini, Dunca, soon to be made Archbishop. Monsignor Borgognini, Duca, was the Vatican's first nuncio to Italy after the signing of the Lateran Treaties. The reader will recall that Borgognini, Duca, was young Father Francis Spellman's patron and a close associate of Angelo Roncalli. He now took young Montini under his wing and became both the young cleric's patron and protector. In addition to his work as a curia, Pope Pius XI assigned Father Montini to the chaplaincy of the Federation of Italian Catholic University Students, FUCI, where the young priest was able to vent his anti-fascist spleen through the FUCI Montini developed a lasting personal friendship with Ido, Ido Moro, one of the founders of a post-war political anomaly known as the Christian Democratic Party, CDP, to which Montini and his entire family religiously committed themselves. Montini also struck up a friendship with the CDP leader, Giulio Andriotti, who went on to become Italy's seven-time prime minister. During his long political career, Andriotti car carved out party alliances with the communist Freemasons and the Sicilian Mafia. It is, well, it is a well-known fact that the Mafia could never have grown 
into the colossus it was without the occlusion of certain Christian democratic leaders and the backing of Freemasonry. To be in bed with one was to be in bed with all three, a truth Montini came to appreciate as Pope Paul VI. For the 30 years that he worked at the Holy Office, Monsignor Montini was never well liked by curial officials or their staff. The pro-fascist Niccolo Cardinal Canali, head of the Vatican administration, did not disguise his intense dislike for the young diplomat. Monsignor later Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani, who tended to be apolitical, also despised young Montini. During the Abyssinian War, Father Montini voiced his support for the League of Nations, a position contrary to official Vatican policy. Pope Pius XI believed that the newly created international organization would usurp the Holy See's role as mediator in international disputes, which it did, and that the League was a den of Freemasons and Communists, which it was. Montini in Milan. And the first person, first opinion one, which one forms of a prince uh, and of his understanding is by observing the men who he has around him. And when they are capable and faithful, he may always be considered wise because he was known how, he has known how to recognize they're capable and to keep them faithful. But when they are otherwise, one cannot form a good opinion of them, for the prime error which he made was in choosing them. Niccolo Machiavelli, the Prince, 1513. Once in Milan, the 57-year-old Montini found himself suddenly free after 30 years from all curial oversight and papal restraint. Archbishop Montini set a new course for himself that would leave an indelible mark on his bishopric and future pontificate. He gathered about him a coterie of like-minded liberal fellow travelers, anarchists, communists, socialists, mafiosi, and members of Milan's artistic and literary avant-garde. As virtue attracts men of virtue, so vice attracts men of vice. The rumor mills of Milan began to run full throttle. It soon became very clear that Montini was not a Marian priest. He was, in fact, a Maritanist priest, an altogether different being. From almost the first day of his arrival, the Milanese, who have a great devotion to the Mother of God, started to complain that our Bishop Montini lacked Marian sensitivity, a charge reinforced by the Archbishop's conspicuous absence from traditional May crowning festivities and pilgrimages to Loreto, and his non-participation in the public recitation of the Rosary. Pope Paul VI biographer Hebelfleet tried to soften the criticism by claiming that Montini favored a Christ-centered Mariology instead but even this verbal concession fell short of the mark. In truth, the theology of Battista Montini was anthropocentric, not theocentric. It was man-centered, not God-centered. Montini was the greatest and most influential disciple of Jacques Martin and his integral humanism, 
aptly described by H. Cannon, H. Caron, and Le Curieux de Rome as embracing a universal fraternity of men of goodwill belonging to different religions or no religion at all. It is within this fraternity that the church should exercise a leveling influence without imposing itself and without demanding that it be recognized as the one true church. The Abbe Georges de Nantes captures the spirit of Maritain's integral humanism and his acronym MASDU, a movement for the spiritual animation of world democracy, movement de animation spiritual de la democratic universal, in which the declaration of the rights of, the, of man replaces the gospel of Jesus Christ. World democracy has become analogous to the kingdom of God on earth and the function of religion is to provide inspiration and spiritual animation for mankind thus regenerated. The end product of Mazdu being the complete annihilation of religion and its metamorphosis into atheistic humanism. It was said that of the new Archbishop of Milan that he didn't hear church bells, he heard factory whistles. It is not surprising, therefore, that on one of his visits to the Archbishop's residence, Jacques Martin, the once great Thomistic philosopher, brought with him Saul David Alinsky, the apostle of permanent revolution. Montini was so impressed with the man whom Martin called his warm personal friend and one of the great, really great men of this century that the Archbishop invited Alinsky to be his guest for a fortnight in order to consult with him on the church's relationship to local communist unions. Born in Chicago in 1909, Saul Alinsky, a non-believing Jew, was a graduate of the streets of Chicago and the University of Chicago. In 1940, he founded the Industrial Areas Foundation as a showcase for his revolutionary tactics for mass organization for power. Alinsky's closest associates were to be found among the Catholic hierarchy and clergy, including Cardinal Mundelein, his protege Bishop Bernard Schild, and activist priest Monsignor John Egan, a prime mover and call to action. Alinsky's principal source of seed money and support was the Rockefeller family, the wealthy and secret communist Marshall Field, and the United States Catholic Conference and M Church. Alinsky worked closely with the Communist Party USA until his break with the party after signing after the signing of the Nazi Soviet Pact. In Jacques Martin and Saul David Alinsky, Fathers of the Christian Revolution, Harnish Hamish Fraser, editor of Approaches, wrote of Alinsky. Alinsky himself is a product of both Freemasonic and revolutionary Marxist naturalism, both of which appreciate the excessive necessity of elites to the seizure and the maintenance of effective power. Alinsky was an unbeliever in to whom the very idea of dogma was anathema. Given Alinsky's naturalism, it is not surprising that there is no room in his sacred ethics for any absolute. 
for anything intrinsically good or evil. Divorced once and legally married thrice, he spoke contemptuously of the old culture where virginity was a virtue. Alinsky's Church of Today and Tomorrow is to be neither Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Islamic, Buddhist, nor animist, but a one-world syncretism, synaptic amalgam of all and every existing belief. As prayer notes, as Fraser notes, what was most unique about Saul Alinsky was not his recipe for a one-world syncretist church, but that he was the first to have his ideas widely accepted within the Catholic Church. However, had not Jacques Martin and his greatest disciple, Pope Paul VI, and the foundation, laid the foundation for the revolution in the Church, Alinsky's alliance and intimacy with the Church would have been impossible, concludes Fraser. During his eight years as Archbishop of Milan, Montini's increasingly radicalized politics brought him into conflict with other members of the Italian Episcopal Conference, including Archbishop Gila Vincenzo Grimini of the Diocese of Navarra. And that's all my reading of the Rite of Sodomy, Homosexual in the Roman Catholic Church today. I have no time now for the catechism because I'm at more than 53 minutes and don't want to go over time. So I'll conclude my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.